Hi, I'm Fran Scott, and this is How to Build a Railway. It's really hard to appreciate the true size of the HS2 project. It is a mammoth undertaking. Right now, it is the largest infrastructure project in the whole of Europe, and it's one of the largest ever undertaken in the UK. But of course, with great size comes great responsibility, as construction is never without its risks, and the bigger the project, the more opportunities there are for something to go wrong. At every point in its design and construction, through to its maintenance and operations, HS2 will have the potential to impact workers and the public's health and well-being. In this episode, we are going to explore how HS2 is taking on this challenge, how the engineers of the project work to identify and mitigate hazards, making use of decades of progress in health and safety within the construction industry, while also building upon that knowledge and helping improve best practice on HS2 and beyond. HS2 is a once-in-a-generational project, the scale of which is unprecedented. If I draw comparisons just for a moment with Thames Tideway, each month they would deliver 600,000 people hours. On HS2, we've seen our workforce work 60 million hours in the last 12 months, and that's only in the construction of Phase 1. That was Emma Head. Emma is HS2's Technical Services Delivery Director, which encompasses the environment and health and safety. We heard from her back in episode 10, as we looked at how HS2 is cutting carbon emissions from its projects. And a project the size and duration of HS2 creates an ever-changing set of risks. As we shift from earthworks to more and more works out of the ground, we will start to focus on structures and that will see the risk profile move to working at height and we will need to respond to that by being clear about how we're going to manage the risks. Dame Judith Hackett is one of the UK's leading experts on health and safety. A chemical engineer by training, she was chair of the Health and Safety Commission from 2007 to 2009 and chair of the Health and Safety Executive from 2008 to 2015. In the wake of the Grenfell fire, she was commissioned to write a report on building and fire safety regulations. All of the report's recommendations were accepted by the UK government. Today, Dame Judith is a non-executive director on HS2's board. The challenges facing HS2 are, are not that different from many other infrastructure projects. But what makes HS2 so different is the sheer scale of things. The fact that we're doing it in so many different locations at the same time makes the learning that we can pick up from other projects always has to be thought about in terms of, so how does that apply to a project on this scale with this many locations and this many people? There are advantages to having something on this scale because you have many different delivery partners involved. Uh, you have uh, not just large scale tier one contractors, but you also have a whole supply chain of people out there. So the opportunity 
to influence and change the thinking about safety with such a large part of the construction sector is enormous. The risks inherent in any major infrastructure program are heightened during the peak construction phase. This was tragically brought home to everyone involved with HS2 when a supply chain worker unfortunately died following an industrial incident at an HS2 site in the West Midlands in April 2023. The cause of the incident is being fully investigated. Such tragedies are a stark reminder of why safety is and must continue to be at the heart of everything that HS2 does, with nearly 30,000 people now working on the programme. HS2 is developing new technological solutions and improved processes to manage the risks involved with construction. The organisation and its supply chain continue to share lessons learnt. In addition, both continue to champion new and safer techniques such as using robotics to produce tunnel segments for the tunnel boring machines. And we looked at how a TBM works in episode 6. The key thing to remember here is that a TBM builds a concrete ring as it goes which supports the ground above it. And this is made up of curved segments which are carried from the back of the TBM to the working area at the front using a segment crane. And this is a trolley mounted crane with a sort of vacuum lifter attached. I suppose like the vacuum grips used by glaziers These use suction to grab the surface of the segment, allowing it to be lifted without causing any damage. These segments are cast on site at a dedicated pre-casting factory that's above ground, and the segments are then stacked into sets using wooden spacers. And these spacers are there to allow the clamps to be used at the factory to sort of grip onto the edges of the segment. And they also stop the concrete surfaces crunching against each other. The stacked segments are carried from this precast factory to the TBM using a multi-service vehicle or an MSV. To explain more, this is Ben Bryant, a TBM engineer with Briggs, who are part of a Line JV. Align JV are using two tunnel boring machines under the Chilterns to dig two 16-kilometer long tunnels, each around 10 meters in diameter. We're currently nine kilometers in from surface, so they are transported onto the TBM using a multi-service vehicle, which I'll call an MSV for ease. So they're brought in one ring at a time on the back of the MSV in two stacks. The stack of segments will then be moved forwards through the TBM and uh, used to build the ring. So once they arrive on the TBM on the back of the MSV, they're lifted off the MSV using quick unloaders, which is just a hydraulic lifting system, basically. Once they're lifted, the MSV can leave the TBM. We'll then use a segment crane, which uses a vacuum suction to pick up one segment at a time, transfer them from the quick unloaders onto a segment feeder, which is basically a conveyor. And that will carry those segments forwards to the front of the TBM ready for building. 
The risk comes as the wooden spaces are removed from the surface of each ring segment before it can be lifted. Traditionally, these wooden spaces would be moved by hand. And depending on the TBM gantry design, you might be able to access some of them from the walkways. But generally speaking, it will involve someone climbing onto the top of the segment stack, picking up these timbers by hand and passing them to someone stood on the gantry. In the case of this site, these timbers spaces, they uh, they weigh about 30 kilos each. It's two per segment. So it's a lot of manual handling. So for us to reduce manual handling, working at height, we've developed a robot system to do it for us. There are real risks to the health and well-being of workers handling the spaces. The top of the segment stack when it, when it's a full stack is probably pushing three meters above the invert level of the tunnel. So it would be a long fall if you were to fall off the segment stack. You've also got the fact that these segments are curved and if it's raining outside, they're gonna be wet. So you'll stand on top of them. You've got the risk of slipping over on top of the segments. Then you've got the handling of the timbers, which admittedly on some projects are, are lighter weight, but they're always generally heavy and awkward. You've got the handling of that, musculoskeletal issues, crushing your hands. And also in the same area, we have this segment crane moving. So if for whatever reason, there's someone on top of the segments and the segment crane operator moves back, you have the risk there of people, plant, interface and any injuries that might come of that. And just because a worker gets through their shift without slipping off the segment stack, that doesn't mean they're not building up damage to their body that may diminish their long-term health. Yeah, musculoskeletal issues, I'd say, would be, the, would be the big issue for the long-term works, just repetitive picking up heavy loads. And it's not always the, uh, the easiest place to work. You might be working in confined spaces, bent over, twisting at awkward angles. So there's lots of in, sort of instances where it could accumulate over time into, into more of an issue. Align's solution was to install a robot arm on the TBM, so a robot arm similar to those that are used in car factories. And this robot arm extends down from the second floor of the TBM and picks up the spaces. The robot arm is again mounted on a, a gantry, and the, uh, so it rolls backwards and forwards as we need it. It's a six-axis robot, very similar to what you'd see on a car production line. So we've mounted this within the, the backup gantry where the segments are put on the quick unloaders. And we use this in conjunction with our segment crane to unload the timbers from the top of the segments. We'll remove the first segment and underneath that first segment, there's two timbers. So as soon as that first segment is picked up, the segment crane operator will activate the robot. Um, all of the doors are locked and all of the safety things are activated at this point. They can continue working away with that first segment. The robot will come forwards and it will rely on sensors built into the quick unloaders and into the robot head to determine the position of the segment and the timbers. It will then dip the tool head down on the robot and it will push the two timbers that are on the segments together. And then it can open up its jaws, close around it using a pneumatic system to clamp onto the timbers. And then it will pick them up, drive back a bit down the gantry, and it will deposit them in an unloading area. The use of the rover arm removes a regular risk from TBM operations. 
Over the course of the project, Align will install something like 8,000 rings in total, and each of these rings will be made up of multiple segments, and each segment is separated by two wooden spaces. So over the course of the project, someone would have had to have climbed up onto the wet, curved surface, bend to pick up the spaces, twist to pass them to a colleague, and then get off the segments ready for the crane to pick up the next one. So that's tens of thousands of movements, each of which could have seen someone fall off the segments or badly twist and cause themselves long-term musculoskeletal damage. And each of those tens of thousands of risky operations have now just been eliminated. But a tunnel is not a car factory. Anyone who has seen or worked in or around a modern vehicle factory will know that these are orderly and immaculate spaces. Trip and collision risks are identified and just removed from the site. And in the factories, robots can perform precise movements on parts that are always in the same position. With any of these robots, there is a very regimented path that it tends to follow. But for us, we've had to factor in the fact that the segment stacks and the timbers aren't always in exactly the same place each time, as you might expect, say, a car door to be on a production line. So the processes that it follows, as I say, are very regimented and pre-programmed. But we have sensors that measure the segment position. And there's tolerances factored into the robot where it can adapt based on where the segments and the timbers are. So we'll always have the bottom of the stack in the same place, and it knows the thickness of the segments and the thickness of the spaces. So it knows within a couple of mil where the segment should be. And then we've got a suspension system in the head, which will accommodate any discrepancy in that position. The TBM is a much more complex and variable environment than a factory, and it is not designed for sensitive equipment or sensors. We're working in a relatively confined space in an environment that's generally more hostile than most production lines. So you can have high temperatures, lots of dust, water, slurry, grout. There's lots of things there that can interfere with quite a finely tuned robot. So the team that developed it had to map the gantry to, and did a 3D map of it to know exactly where every beam, column and wall were. And then that's factored into the robot design. So we've had to obviously give it enough movements that it can avoid all of these clashes, that it can turn around inside the gantry without hitting anything. And then they've had to factor in, as we said, the, the position of the segments, the position of the timbers, and all the different sensors that we need uh, to have in place to make sure that we know exactly where everything is. This robot doesn't have a sort of mind of its own. It's, it's got a very pre-programmed route. So if there's anything there that there shouldn't be, it doesn't know and it will hit it. So we've had to go through a lot of processes to make sure that it can't hurt itself or anyone else. Align had to fine tune the robot's movements at the start of the project. But it was soon working at the same rhythm as the rest of the TBM, handling the spaces without risk and without delay to the rest of the tunneling operations. But Ben can see ways that it could be improved further. Yeah, I mean, I think the technology's there already. It can only be improved by other modern means. 
I'd say 3D scanning of areas is probably one of the modern things that we can use to speed up the process rather than having to define the boundaries of the robot. We can just 3D scan the area and say, right, there's your working area, don't hit anything. Where HS2 crosses the M42, northeast of Birmingham. Here, HS2 had originally planned to build a bridge in situ. Now, this would have required road closures for two years, of course, disrupting the traffic in the wider area and introducing risks to both the workers and the public. Joint venture contractor Balfour BT Vinci proposed an alternative method. The entire structure would be built off-site in discrete steps and then slid into place. Effectively, this method was just about relocating the high-risk elements of the project to a more protected and controlled site. But to make all of this possible, they would need some rather clever engineering. Sasanganami worked on the Marston Bridge project and is now Deputy Project Director for Sub Lot 7. So that's the 50-mile stretch of the railway close to Birmingham and linking to the West Coast mainline. Work started on the project by excavating an area the size of the main bridge section down to a depth of four meters, and that formed a base for construction. The concrete platform, which would form the surface of the structure, was then built on top. So everything for this structure started from this platform going upwards. So once we've got that, the, the foundation constructed, then the structure started building up in stages. First, we started the base foundation. Then we started the three walls. And then we put the deck on the top. The platform is designed to create a frictionless surface, allowing it to slide along the ground when construction is completed. You've got a platform, concrete platform, and then you built the box on top of that. What there is within the base foundation of the structure, uh, there is a certain amount of plumbing gets taken place within this base. The purpose of these tubes are for injecting bentonite to on the side of the base, which then gets spread as the box going forward to form a sort of a, a slip membrane. Before we cast the base of the construction on the platform, we applied a grease and a polythene layer so that the, the two concrete faces are, are separated. Bentonite will be pumped through the pipes to form a slide membrane. The entire box structure weighed more than 12,000 tons and measured 96 meters long. The box would then be pulled into place using strand jacks. Now these work in a similar way to someone climbing up a rope. So picture a climber gripping a rope with their hands and pulling their legs up and then putting the rope between their feet and reaching up with their hands further up the rope. There was nine jacks fitted at the back of the, the box structure. There was three on one corner, three on the middle, and three on the other corner. 
the troughs was fixed at the beginning of the push slab into a into concrete slab in the ground and it was basically came through the trough and through the jacks and and laid on the back into the another anchor at the at the back of the structure this approach meant that rather than closing the motorway for 2 years only two short closures were needed one came in december 2021 for a week as the site prepared for the move and the second came in December 2022, when the bridge was slid into place over another one-week period. Both jobs were actually completed ahead of schedule. This off-site approach removed risk to road users and avoided any potential delays to emergency response vehicles required in the wider community. But it also meant that work on site could be conducted more safely. Construction would be conducted in discrete steps, with minimal movements around the plant. In order to construct this, we deployed two tower cranes in order to do the lifting and basically uh, doing anything within the perimeter of the work for the workforce, i.e. the uh, lifting of the reinforcement in place, so lifting the four works in place for them so that they could reduce the movement around the structure. That decreased movement of the plant around the box. By working the static tower cranes in place, we reduced the use of the mobile crane to roughly about 20%. The tower cranes were used alongside concrete pumps. And these were supplied by a concrete batching plant close to the construction site. And this offered a quick turnaround for lorries and avoided them needing to use public roads. The material, external material, which was coming from off-site was predominantly steel and, and the accessories and the, some of the small tools. But that was much, much reduced Designing the structure in this way allowed work to take place in a much more controlled fashion. Rather than multiple stages happening at once, one stage could be completed before the next started. Because of the staging, we had only one access and one egress. So we controlled the ins and outs of the, to the area far better in terms of plant, in terms of visitors, in terms of operatives because everybody had to go through one gate and there was a gate person that who uh, briefed everybody about the activity was taking place and what they need to do in case of any incidents. The risks were day by day identified. We had a board at the gate identified what risks they are on particular that particular day and who's responsible for managing that risk and how we were managing it. You know, in terms of PPE, we were telling people, well, today is a noisy operation, so you've got to wear your, you know, the ear protection. Uh, today there is a lifting, so you don't need to go in that area. So it was a far better defined work space management. The Marston Box Push was a first of its kind in the UK, and it involved a radical reworking of traditional construction methods, removing risks in and around site. 
Other initiatives like the TBM robotic arm that we heard about from Ben earlier are much more focused, reducing risk from a specific operation. Both form part of an approach called health by design. The idea is to identify risks to occupational health and well-being before construction even starts. Fiona King is Head of Occupational Health and Wellbeing at HS2. She leads the implementation of this approach. One of the most exciting things about this project and probably what really attracted me was that we're actually trying to really emphasise the importance of looking at health from the very early stages of design right through construction into like all the other maintenance, all the other sectors. But we're really, from the very onset, we're thinking about health. So we're trying to, we used to say we're treating health like safety, but really what we're trying to do is we're trying to raise the profile of occupational health so people understand the difference between occupational ill health and accidents. The terminology is health by design. So what you're looking at is trying to eliminate or mitigate health risks at very early stages. Now, it's been done on Crossrail where we've looked, where we've used help by design. But what we try to do is take it a step further on this program. And what we try to do with, you know, our instructions to our contractors probably don't really like them, but to really get occupational health specialists. So that could be anyone from an occupational hygienist to an occupational health nurse, ergonomist, organisation psychology to really understand the health impacts of a particular design and how can we really think about the ill effects potentially from health at a construction stage, at a maintenance stage and even at a demolition stage. So really looking at it through the life cycle. The innovations at Marston Box and in the tunnel boring machine address safety concerns like the potential for falls. They also address occupational health by reducing the harm caused by musculoskeletal damage. But many risks to occupational health make themselves known only decades later. It can take a long time for ill, particularly occupational ill health to develop. So we mightn't see it for maybe 10 years. It could be 15. It could be even 20 years. And actually, we might have new materials now that we won't even know the impact of them until later on. So it's what we refer to is latent. It takes a long time to see if there's going to be any ill effects from it. You know, you really will see the impact of decisions we make for, you know, later on. And that's the bit where hopefully we'll be all sat in 20, 25 years thinking, yeah, we got that decision right and we have eliminated harm because we weren't able to do that in previous, you know, I suppose in previous big construction, infrastructure projects years and years ago because the knowledge wasn't there. There can be long-term risks to occupational health on a construction site that are far less obvious and immediate than the risks of accidents, but they can have devastating effects on workers' lives. People underestimate and probably don't see even the impact of an occupational illness, you know, and I'm thinking of things like skin conditions like dermatitis, like hand arm vibration, where, you know, you might be able to do up the buttons on your, you know, your shirt or your trousers or tie your shoelaces. 
HS2's occupational health and well-being team get out on site and help identify materials and processes that may cause long-term harm. What we've done a little bit different, I think, to other projects, um, some may argue, but I think it's slightly different, is that we've ensured that every contractor has occupational health teams that are on that are on site that are really looking at a health management plan and they're really understanding what are the health risks to those work areas not to the rest of the project but to those particular work um, areas and you know we we have to support our designers to help them you know make that decision as well help them understand the health risk because they're not going to see the health risk today because they're not going to happen for for a few years potentially to come we're trying to develop a tool that will help a designer help with that decision making and that's something that's in development at the moment Fiona's team works with the project's designers and contractors to identify long-term threats to health and well-being. And they then help individual workers manage their own health and well-being. I think in some ways, those that are coming into the construction area now are more, they're more concerned about their health and being well. One of the things we want to make sure in the project is that people are getting access to good occupational health advice so that you know, they are having those health surveillance, they are having those fitness to work medicals um, so that, you know, we can we can understand whether people's health is improving or not. One focus of this work has been on fatigue, which can be a cause of accidents and is detrimental to workers' overall well-being. We're doing quite a bit of research around fatigue and the impact of fatigue on workforce. And fatigue is quite a difficult one because everyone's fatigue levels will be different, but we can manage it to the sense that people then can go and not be fatigued when they leave work and, you know, can work effectively when they're at work. So we've got a number of those projects happening, a number of research happening at the moment that's looking at it and looking at it more in particular in construction industry. A lot of the research has been done in kind of more aviation, oil and gas and stuff like that. So we're specifically looking at it now in terms of construction and what does it mean for a construction worker so that we can learn and share and do a bit more in that space. Construction is a sector dominated by temporary contract work and this makes collecting data on long-term occupational health a challenge. While HS2 can't track the health of individual workers throughout their careers, the scope and the duration of the HS2 project does allow a mass of data to be collected. There's a few things that we are doing on the programme at the moment that's helping us capture how well we are managing our health risks. We collect a lot of data as well in health, and sometimes that data can sit there, and it's how do we best use that to inform future uh, future parts of our own programme and actually influence maybe some of those um, industry standards and even some of our legislative standards as well. As the programme expands and evolves, health and well-being risks will vary, but the resolve to put health and well-being risks at the heart of HS2 remains constant. 
we must not be complacent. We must remain super focused on health and safety management every day to protect all those that work on HS2. As well as bringing her formidable expertise to the board, Dame Judith and the other non-executives ensure that its executives are meeting their commitments. As a board, it is our role to ensure that uh, the executive are uh, leading safety in a way that we believe is appropriate. So it's really important that we, we assure ourselves that they are doing exactly that and also that they're doing it in the right way so that they are pulling through, if you will, those behaviours that we want to see from the, that huge number of people who, who are working on the project. The non-executives can only be sure that the executives and the organisation as a whole are meeting their aspirations if their performance can be measured. Our health and safety performance index, as we call it, in essence, at the end of the day, distills itself down to one number, which is pretty impenetrable to most people, but it is a way of benchmarking ourselves against other projects that have gone before. But what sits beneath that are a whole series of very specific measures about how well do we respond, are we assuring ourselves that we have good supervision out there, that are leading on safety. All of those things are what we measure to make up that performance index. That number is used day to day to ensure operations are as safe as possible, but it also allows HS2 to measure its overall performance and report on this publicly. Other projects can can compare and can learn from us, and the two things are different. This is not a competition, and I, and I think we have to remember that in the health and safety space particularly, this is not about being triumphant about how good we are. It is actually about ensuring that all of the really good things that we do to move on in construction and become even safer in everything that we do don't get lost and that future projects don't have to start from somewhere back from that and have to learn those lessons for themselves. The fact that we have chosen at this point to produce a health and safety report on our first part of this journey and to bring all of that together, the numbers actually form a very small part of that report. What the report is really about is all of the lessons that we've learned, the good practices that we've put in place and the things that we're trying to do because we want to anchor that at this point and get it out to people. We ultimately want to create a culture where everybody cares about the health and safety of the workforce and that will be a legacy well beyond the delivery of HS2. Dame Judith says that the scale of the project will allow it to reshape the industry. And I think that is one of the biggest opportunities we have. When we talk about setting new standards and setting even better standards that have been achieved on previous infrastructure projects, for me that's what it's all about. The extent of that reach and our ability to change the mindset and the behaviours of people who will then go on to work on other projects far and wide. 
with a very different approach to safety for themselves and also for the other people that they work with. Next time on How to Build a Railway. Ever since HS2 was announced, the company has been planning not just how they would build a railway, but what kind of legacy HS2 wanted and how they would deliver it. Very early on in the project's development, the legacy team decided on one of their major focuses, jobs and skills. So both in terms of the, the infrastructure industry and the rail industry, it's an ageing workforce. Uh, it is a problem, an industry with a lack of diversity, and we're trying to change that. And, and the scale and size of HS2 means that, that we can really make an industry step change and we can be a game changer for, for the industry in general. We're aiming to have 2,000 apprentices over the life of the project. And I think it's fair to say we're, we're smashing that target. Legacy is not just about creating jobs and skills. Mega projects like HS2 also need to consider their economic legacy. And we've funded a huge variety of projects over the years. I mean, we're literally in hundreds now, well over 230 projects we've funded along the phase one line of route. If you fast forward 30 years, there will be over 7 million square feet of commercial development that that doesn't currently exist, or, or it's just, just in the early days of being developed. There'll be over 8,000 new homes. There'll be, on current value, over £6 billion per annum extra going into the West Midlands economy. And there'll be tens of thousands of new jobs. I mean, railways are expensive to build, period. <laughs> so if you're going to invest in a railway, um, you've, got, you've got to go, right, it's going to cost a lot of money, but there are going to be long-term benefits. Your host has been me, Fran Scott. Thanks to our guests, Sasan Ganami, Emma Head, Dame Judith Hackett, Fiona King and Ben Bryant. To learn more about HS2, go to hs2.org.uk or follow us on social media at HS2LTD.